Good evening and welcome to All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church for uh, this, gosh, how many in a series of debates? Because I know we haven't hosted them all. This is number six. And we are so pleased to have uh, Chan Heron and Randall Lord back here at All Souls. Um, my name is Susan Caldwell, and I'm the Director of Religious Education. And um, as I said, we're pleased to welcome uh, Chan Heron. He is a teacher of apologetics at Word of God Academy. And Randall Lord is a local chiropractor and also a member of the Architects Free Thinkers Association. Um, I'm the Director of Religious Education here, and on behalf of our pastor, the Reverend Barbara Jarrell, who could not be here this evening, and um, our Board of Directors and our congregation, we welcome you to this home of the free pulpit and the free pew. Um, I do feel like we're the best possible home for this debate um, and for the two organizations represented. After all, the Universalists on this continent rose right out of the Protestant tradition, and we are all about the priesthood of the believer. And free thinkers of all persuasions join us here in worship um, every Sunday and in membership and have done so for the entire 64-year history of this congregation. And beyond that, the motto of this church is a quote from Francis David, who said, we need not think alike to love alike. And these two guys, to me, embody that spirit like nobody's business. They have developed a friendship over the years. You will see tonight something rare in this world, a civil conversation that deals with the issues with respect for the individuals. And I, I am all about that, and we are all about that in this church. So we thank you for, for your commitment to that. Um, I also want to thank you. You are eschewing the Red River Rebel and the LSU-Auburn game to be here. So I know that you are storing up treasure in whatever natural or supernatural location of your choosing. So thank you, thank you for that. Um, now let me take just a few minutes to run through the ground rules for the evening. First of all, um, Chan and Randy will each make an opening statement of 15 minutes. And have you guys tossed a coin to determine who will? And so uh, Randy will go first. And then following that, each of them will make an eight-minute rebuttal statement. And then after that, and we'll, we'll, we'll go through this again as we go along, but they'll each have about eight to ten minutes to ask questions of each other. Um, it's kind of a crossfire section. And, um, and then, depending on time, we'll have about 10 to 15 minutes of your questions. And I'll remind you again, but in the interest of extending that opportunity to as many of you as would like to have it, we'll ask only for real questions, not lectures, and not questions that are tacked on to the end of lectures. Okay, and thank you for, for respecting that. So if you have long and wide-ranging, meandering thoughts on this topic, you are certainly welcome to talk with the guys afterward down in the social hall. Um, following your Q&A, they will each deliver a five-minute closing statement, after which you're all invited, as I said, to join us for um, an informal gathering down in the social hall. And so with that, I am going to get out of the way. And um, Randall Lord, come on up. I'd like to thank All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church for hosting tonight's discussion and for each one of you for attending and I hope that you participate by asking questions and research the issue further at home. 
For those that, of you that may not know it, Chan and I have debated each other a few times, and tonight's topic has surfaced on occasion. But for the most part, I've not engaged him as it's too big of a topic to answer with a short soundbite answer. I asked Chan that we devote an entire evening to this one topic. From the beginning of recorded time, man has tried to explain the world he found himself in, usually giving uh, supernatural answers to the hardest questions that he faced. There was a time when people thought that, we, uh, that what we now call natural phenomena was the work of unseen agents or even a supreme agent. For example, it wasn't until Benjamin Franklin did his famous kite and key experiments that we understood that lightning was just static electricity. Before that, many people referred to such phenomena as acts of God. This type of reasoning is commonly called God of the gaps. That is, that there is a gap in our knowledge and something that we don't know or understand and we just fill it in with God did it. Such answers are usually an admission of ignorance disguised as though it were a real answer. Our language reflects this attitude in many areas, even though even long after we have the real answer. For example, a person will say creation implies a creator or other natural phenomena or acts of God. Using s such a basis, one could argue that since there is reality, there has to be a realtor. I'm glad you got that. <laughs> a fish swims in water that it isn't even aware of. Our language is littered with religious ideas, and this sometimes gets in the way. We frequently ha uh, fail to stop to consider how language affects our thoughts and our views of reality. Now, speaking of language, we need to define a few terms tonight if we're going to have an effective communication. What does, what does morals mean? What does naturalism or supernaturalism mean? Since Chan is arguing for supernaturalism, I'll let him explain that or define it. Now, if Chan and I don't mean the same thing when we say morals, we're just talking past each other, and the debate is confusing and meaningless. So let's start with morals. What are morals? According to the dictionary, morals are all about the conduct or actions between humans. If a lion kills another lion, we can't say that that's immoral or moral because that's outside of, uh, the, of the definition because it's not an interaction between humans. In other words, it's how we treat each other. If we can also include our thoughts that give rise to these actions, eh, we sometimes can say that our thoughts can be immoral or immoral as well. But you, generally, we're, what we're talking about is our actions. For example, if I steal from you, I have committed an immoral action as I have harmed you by my act. If I sit at home and think about stealing from you, no transgression has occurred. And in philosophy, there are two branches of morals or ethics. There's descriptive and normative. Descriptive refers to our personal or cultural values, codes of conduct, or social mores. It does not connote objective claims of right or wrong, but only refers to that which is considered right or wrong. In other words, it's about opinions. Descriptive ethics is the branch of philosophy which studies morality in that sense. Normative, on the other hand, refers to whatever is actually right or wrong, which may be independent of values and mores held by a particular peoples or cultures. 
Normative ethics is the branch of philosophy which studies morality in that sense. If one presupposes that God created everything, the universe, space, matter, and even the very laws that govern it, then of course he created morals as well. That would be nothing, to, be nothing compared to creating the entire universe. If you define God as good, then the idea that morals are an emergent property through naturalism is not even a conceivable or coherent ideal to you. And that's the problem we're facing here tonight. And what I want you to do is to try to get you outside of your normal thinking and uh, your normal biases and look objectively at this view and allow yourself to do something you may have never uh, done before. And I'm sure your God will forgive you if you step outside the confines of your religion or your worldview for a brief moment to consider that uh, there may be another valid idea on the table. I know that even if you take this risky step with me and you have to run back to the herd mentality to make your world reoriented to your familiar view, that's eh, normal. Every person that got away from a uh, mind control cult, whether it was religious or political, like the one in North Korea, it takes years to overcome this in most cases. So don't be too hard on yourselves. Deep-seated beliefs like this take time to unravel. All right, next, what is naturalism? Naturalism is the idea or belief that only laws of nature, as opposed to supernatural or spiritual, are the forces that operate in the world. The idea or belief that nothing exists outside this uh, natural world. Adherents to naturalism assert that natural laws are the rules that govern the structure and the behavior of the natural universe. And the changing universe at every stage is a product of these laws. Naturalism can be separated into metaphysical and methodological components. Metaphysical here refers to the philosophical study of nature of reality. Some philosophers equate naturalism with materialism. For example, the philosopher uh, Karl Kurtz argues that nature is best accounted for by reference to material principles. These principles include mass, energy, and other uh, physical and chemical properties accepted by the scientific community. Further, this sense of naturalism holds that spirits, deities, ghosts, etc., are not real and that there is no purpose in nature. Such an absolute belief in naturalism is commonly referred to as metaphysical naturalism or sometimes called philosophical naturalism. In general, this is taking the position that nothing but the natural exists. <clears throat> I don't think that this is a defensible position as if there is anything uh, outside of the universe, we found no way to detect it, to test it, or to say much about it. And I don't want to be making positive assertions as that requires evidence. I use the second meaning of naturalism, methodological naturalism, which is the basis for science. We can only investigate those things that we can test, and therefore we uh, we can only uh, investigate the things that are asserted to come, we, we cannot test the things that are asserted to come from a supernatural realm. There are those that claim that uh, to have paranormal powers like uh, talking to the dead, ESP, telekinesis, healing with prayer, etc. So far, each of these claims, when investigated under proper observational conditions, 
fails to be anything more than sleight of hand, cold reading, uh, confirmation bias, or just plain delusion. If you can prove any such powers like these, you just need to call the James Randi Foundation and claim your million-dollar prize if you can pull it off. Now that we have this out of the way, in the naturalist view, how do morals appear? Well, if Charles Darwin's explanation of how species originated is, is true, and it has been proven by scientists all over the world for decades, then it's a rather simple extrapolation to understand that the very things that make genetic variation lead to changes in the offspring can also lead to changes in behavior. This has been demonstrated with selective breeding of many species of animals. For example, when an experiment went horribly wrong in Brazil, while a scientist was trying to breed a, uh, a, group, uh, uh, a species of productive bees with uh, the docile uh, European honeybees, he, he was trying to make them better, but he ended up with a very aggressive Africanized bee. All appearances were exactly the same as the docile bee. The only thing that was different was that there were a few different codes of DNA and its behavior changed dramatically. Or we can take another example when we take foxes from the wild and through selective breeding we can uh, pick only those that uh, get along well with humans. In fact, after just a few generations we have foxes that behave more like uh, domesticated dogs and they even bark. So, the more social they are, the more likely they are to, dis to display and follow their species' social behavioral rules. Humans just seem to be more elaborate and have an extensive set of social rules. When we say that someone's behavior is good, we usually mean that it is con condu conducive to the preservation or promotion of our well-being. If it's harmful, it's said to be bad or evil. In addition to observing various species of mammals for hints of the origin of the morals, we can also observe it in humans as they grow from infancy to adulthood. Our ability to understand the consequences of our actions are the product of a growing brain as well as our cultural influences. One thing that seems to really distinguish us from the lower species of mammals is our ability to think about the consequences of our actions. Therefore, my argument is essentially that our morals are a product of our brains. It's hardwiring as well as the experiences and thoughts. We had observed that when a person's brain is damaged, their personality can uh, alter drastically. A once thoughtful and gentle person can turn mean and vicious. All of this has naturalistic explanation. No magic or supernaturalism is needed. In summary, we can say that our morals are derived from three sources our DNA, that is, that we were born with, our species morals. Our morals are further developed and shaped by our culture and our experiences. And third, our thoughts. We can think about what is good or bad, just like what we're doing here tonight. To close, I'd like to leave you a quote from one of my favorite uh, authors and scientists, Carl Sagan. Elegance goes directly to the question of how the laws of nature are constructed. Nobody knows the answer to that. Nobody. It's, perfectly, it's a perfectly legitimate hypothesis, in my view, to say that some extremely elegant creator made those laws. 
But I think if you go down that road, then you must have the courage to ask the next question, which is, where did that creator come from? And where did his or her elegance come from? And if you say what was always there, then why not just say that the laws of nature were always there and skip a step? Thank you. I broke the first rule of a moderator, which was not to state the question in the first place. The question, for those of you who may not know this evening, is what best explains morality, naturalism, or supernaturalism? And obviously, um, Randall just delivered the naturalism position, and now I will introduce Chan Heron. Good evening. Thank you, Susan, for and all souls for allowing us to use your church for the third time. And uh, thanks uh, to Randy for his uh, opening remarks and uh, for being a, a good opponent for the last number of years. And I want to thank you guys for coming to participate and listen to tonight's debate. And I am sure that it will be both intellectually and stimulating and thought-provoking for both sides. And I hope it will be a significant step forward for you in your own um, spiritual journey. The primary purpose of reason is to help us discover what is true. The tool of reason is argument. Now, an argument is a specific kind of thing. Think of it like a simple house, a roof supported by walls. The roof is the conclusion, and the walls are the supporting ideas. If the walls are solid, the conclusion rests securely on its supporting structure. If the walls collapse, the roof comes down, and the argument is defeated. The task of critical thinking is to weed out distracting or irrelevant details so you have an unobstructed view of the core argument and you can assess its strength. So tonight, as you listen to both sides of the argument, I want you to ask yourself three questions. Four questions, sorry. Four questions of the presenters. One, what is the claim that's being made? Number two, what are the reasons given to support the claim? Number three, which appeals are irrelevant? And number four, does the conclusion follow from the evidence given? Now, I believe these four questions this evening will guide you in determining which way the evidence points. So tonight's topic is which bets explains morality, naturalism or supernaturalism. And Randy did a good job of defining naturalism, so I accept that definition of naturalism. And supernaturalism is the idea that there are things beyond nature that exist, such as minds, souls, spirits, ghosts, God, gods, etc. While, while I do not accept all supernatural claims about the supernatural realm, for the purpose of tonight's topic and debate, I will regard supernaturalism to mean the theistic God. Every person tonight has a worldview. A worldview is our most basic beliefs that shape our view of and for the world and are the basis of our decisions and actions. Every worldview attempts to answer four basic questions. The question of origins, where did we come from? The question of meaning, does life have value and purpose? The question of morality, are right and wrong objectively true concepts? And the question of destiny, what happens after we die? In tonight's debate, I will deal with the question of morality. My heart sank as I watched Diane Sawyer 
interview J.C. Dugard, America learned how this young girl was kidnapped at age 11 by Philip Garrido, a sex offender, and held against her will for 18 years. She was sexually abused and tortured. The question Diane Sawyer in all of America wanted to know was how could someone do such a horrendous act to an innocent young girl? This brings an even deeper question. Are certain things really right? Are certain things really wrong? Do objective moral values exist? Do we have a moral duty to our fellow man? Do human beings possess equal rights? This evening, I will argue that God is the best explanation for objective moral values, duties, and human rights. So let's define some terms. I need to distinguish between values and duties. A moral value has to do with something's worth, whether it's good or bad or right or wrong. Whereas a moral duty has to do with an obligation, what you ought or what you ought not to do. By objective, I mean something is right or wrong, irregardless of someone's opinion about it. For example, if Hitler had won World War II and somehow convinced everyone who disagreed with him that he was right, it would have still been wrong. That's what I mean by objective. Point number one, God is the best explanation for objective moral values. Now, we know things in different ways. Some things we know through our five senses. We can see, we can touch, we can hear, taste, and smell. We trust this information to be accurate. We also know things through pure reason. We draw inferences based on cause and effect and by using the laws of logic. For example, we know that there are no such thing as square circles. But other truths are known by immediate awareness and just introspection. And philosophers call this knowledge by intuition. Intuitions are the way we start to know everything. And by intuition, I mean that the truth of the proposition is immediately evident. Further analysis is not possible, nor is further justification needed. I argue that just as we have physical faculties that give us correct information about the physical realm, we also possess a moral intuition that gives us correct information about the metaphysical realm, such as J.C. Dugard's story. We don't have to think about that act as being horrendous and wrong. We know it is. We know that these acts, we know these acts are wrong in an intuitive manner. They're just self-evident. Our moral intuition informs our moral language, and that's why we use words like justice, fairness, respect, moral, immoral, and we think we're using them correctly when we apply them to a situation we wish to convey. We naturally see things, and we use words to describe them as that was unfair, or that was wrong, that was right. Our moral sense allows us to see these things. We naturally see these moral truths. Each of these concepts depends on some objective moral standard for it to be intelligible. And I argue that that standard is the nature of God. Number two, God is the best explanation for objective moral duties. Moral duties imply some type of obligation to our fellow man, an oughtness, 
if you will. Such as, you ought not kidnap an 11-year-old girl and torture her for 18 years. You ought to treat those who disagree with you with dignity and respect. This oughtness seems to have imperative force behind it that I think is better explained by having a commander. The late C.S. Lewis, in his book Mere Christianity, writes, Supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger, you will probably feel two desires. One, a desire to give help due to your herd instinct. The other, a desire to keep out of danger due to the instinct for self-preservation. But you will find inside you, in addition to these two impulses, a third thing, which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. Now, this thing that judges between the two instincts that decides which should be encouraged cannot itself be either of them. If two instincts are in conflict and there is nothing in a creature's mind except those two instincts, obviously the stronger of the two instincts must win. But at those moments, when we are most conscious of the moral law, it usually seems to be telling us to side with the weaker of the two impulses. You probably want to be safe much more than you want to help the man who is in danger, but the moral law tells you to help him all the same. Naturalism is powerless to explain this oughtness. Point number three, God is the best explanation for human rights. Do human beings have rights? Do they have equal rights? If so, what is it based on? It can't be anything physical because there is nothing physical that we all share equally. There are tall people, short people, fat people, skinny people, dumb people, smart people, socially useful people, and the socially useless people. So maybe there is something that is non-physical that we share that gives the basis for human rights. I think there is. It's the image of God. If God exists, then he has created man in his image, which means we reflect certain characteristics of God. God has a mind, a will, emotions. He's capable of relationships. We have minds. We have wills. We have emotions. We are capable of relationships. Therefore, the image of God provides a sound basis for human rights and equal human rights at that. If there is no God, then it would be difficult to argue that humans ought to treat each other with dignity and respect. The biologist Richard Dawkins, who is an atheist, sees the logical conclusion to this view. Listen to what he says in his book, Out of Eden, and I quote, In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Richard Dawkins has it right. If. If there is no God. We can sum up our argument as follows. Premise one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values, duties, and human rights do not exist. Premise two, but objective moral values, duties, and human rights do exist, therefore God exists. Thank you.
So it's now time for our eight-minute rebuttals, and we will bring back Randall Lord. Chan and I have done a few debates, and we've even done one about the uh, evidence for the existence of God, but that was not tonight's topic. I want to start where Chan ended his presentation. He presented William Lane Craig's uh, moral argument for God. Now, this is a logical syllogism to prove the existence of God, but that's really not what tonight's uh, debate was supposed to be about. It's about presenting the evidence to show that naturalism or supernaturalism is the source that best explains our morals. In the past, when Chan presented this argument, I had not fully engaged him on it because debunking would have taken all of my uh, available time. So tonight, I hope I can bury this. The first time I encountered this argument, I was a bit perplexed by it. Something about it just didn't feel right, but it was hard to find the flaws in it. And that was because the argument had a hidden premise in it, and it took me a while to uncover it. Well, let me refresh your memory just quickly what his argument was. Premise one, if God doesn't exist, objective moral values and duties don't exist. Premise two, objective moral values and duties do exist. Conclusion, therefore, God exists. The thing I find odd about this is the, in the first premise is that it is a contra-negative. Let me restate a contra-negative premise to you so you can see what I mean. If A is not true, then B is not true. It would be simpler to understand if it was stated in the positive. If A is true, then B is true. But if he did that, that would expose the problem with this uh, argument. Um, and that would simply be, if God exists, then God exists. Or, I'm sorry, if God exists, then morals exist. Morals exist, therefore God exists. Now, since Chan already believes that his God exists and that our morals come from the said God, his argument is meaningless as we learn absolutely nothing new. Another thing I want to point out is Chan doesn't define morals. I've had many talks with him before tonight, and I think that I have a fairly accurate idea of what he means. And if I'm wrong, I'm sure he'll uh, correct me. <laughs> Chan has argued that God's very nature is good. In other words, one of God's identifying characteristics is goodness. And therefore, whatever God says is good is good because goodness is his nature and that's all he can be. This is known as the divine command theory. If morals mean good and good is a characteristic of God, then Chan's argument is again found to be circular. Replace objective morals with God and the argument is if God doesn't exist, then God doesn't exist. God does exist, therefore God exists. And that exposes how circular that argument is. <clears throat> the first premise that he gives is often disputed uh, by many uh, philosophers. And the thing is, that's rather odd, is that many religious believers seem to take it on, on its face value for some reason, as though it were true. Now, if Chan means that God is God or good is good or goodness, then the argument is just simply circular because you're just simply restating a characteristic of God. And therefore, the conclusion is, is already in the premise. Now, Chan allowed you to assume a common understanding of morals. Why? 
The word moral should be defined as soon as it's introduced. This definition cannot include a reference to God without the argument becoming circular. And if it doesn't include a reference to God, then in what sense can he mean good? For example, why does the apologist consider rape to be a wrong, assuming that they do? It is contrary to God's nature is just simply begging the question. Or saying that, uh, well, because the victim suffers needlessly, and that would require sufficient proof that the victim wouldn't suffer in a godless universe. Well, and then that brings up another question. Well, which God? This argument doesn't specify a particular God, which is the source of the true objective moral standards. Even if one accepted the argument, one would be forced to decide which religion to follow by some other means. If one can determine which God is the true God without using this argument, then how is this argument necessary in the first place? Alternatively, if one cannot rationally find the correct religion, the argument undermines its own respect towards objective morality by suggesting that morality comes from a source we cannot recognize. While this doesn't mean that the argument is false, it does imply that human beings can never legitimately understand whether they are acting rightly or wrongly. Incidentally, we can also ask, which morality? Christian morality has changed throughout history and varies with which Christian individual or which Christian sect is interpreting it. Further, this argument is an argument from ignorance. Even if objective moral values and duties were proven to exist 100%, it doesn't follow that a god put them there. It may be, for all we know, have been placed there by aliens. We have no idea, but simply to assert that God did it is an argument from ignorance. Now, it's common to hear an argument like this. You recognize mass murder or slavery or rape or whatever to be a wrong thing or a bad thing, so you must have some kind of standard on which to judge that. If there is no God, then you have no rational reason for saying that these things aren't good. Well, no, I recognize these things are bad because I have empathy and I have an, a functioning mind. I could spend uh, quite a bit of time going over the problems with Chan's moral argument, but I, I don't want to do all that because I want to get to some of the other points that he, was, he made tonight. Now, Chan told us that every worldview must answer four questions. Well, let me have a stab at those. Number one, where did we come from? Well, I'm a native of Shreveport, and I think you are too, so I'd say we come from Shreveport. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, it appears that life on Earth originated from something even simpler than a single cell. So my answer to number one is we came from Earth, even though a few scientists have speculated that life may have originated on Mars and rode here as microscopic bacteria inside of rocks, blasted into space from a volcano. But until uh, there's further evidence about that, I'm just going to stick with uh, saying that life originated on Earth. Number two, does life have a meaning or purpose? It has a meaning or purpose. It has the meaning or purpose that we give it. So be sure to give it a good one. Number three, are objective, are morals objective? Well, I don't think they are, Chan, and I don't really think you can prove that they are either. Number four, what happens after we die? While the idea of an afterlife can be comforting to many, 
what cosmic purpose would it serve? If I had to spend eternity on my knees worshiping and praising a being that created me, that would be my hell. When we die, our minds cease to function, we lose consciousness, and we don't know anything. Is that title on? Eight. Oh, is that all the time I had? Oh, man. <laughs> I had a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and now the eight-minute rebuttal from Chan Heron. In my opening, I asked you to consider four questions. What's the claim? What's the evidence given to support the claim? What are the irrelevant details does the conclusion follow? I would also ask you to uh, recall my, my summary argument. If God doesn't exist, then objective moral values, duties, and human rights do not exist, but objective moral rights and values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. And I will address um, uh, Randy's issue of that in the crossfire section. There are several positions in which Randy and I agree. And I would like to point these out first. Um, number one, he says that morals are about the conduct of actions between humans, uh, not animals. And, and I agree with that statement. We are talking about conduct between human beings. But implicit in his affirmation of this is the importance of personhood. And I will bring up the importance of personhood when we um, question each other. I'll ask him about that in more detail. The second thing I, I agree uh, with Randy on is that if one presupposes that God created everything in the universe, then of course he created morals as well. And I agree with Randy in, uh, somewhat. However, I'm not arguing from God to morals. I'm arguing from morals to God. The third area where I agree with Randy is that there are some supernatural claims that I reject as well. Randy points out um, supernatural claims of talking to the dead, where people claim to have uh, ESP, extrasensory perception, and they can read minds, and our people can move things with their mind, telekinesis. Um, he even mentions James Randy, and James Randy... Um, was responsible for exposing the Reverend uh, Peter Popoff a number of years ago, who the Reverend, uh, the televangelist Peter Popoff, uh, claimed to know intimate details about his parishioners and said that God was telling them, telling him to tell them things. And James Randi came in and, and uh, did a little scanner and intercepted a communication where Reverend Peter Popoff had an earpiece and he was getting... Uh, instructions from his wife. Well, I think that should be exposed as well. And so I there are su some supernatural claims that I do reject as well. Now to the claims in which I uh, disagree with Randy. In, in his opening statement, he asked each of you to step outside the confines of your religious worldview for a moment to consider that there may be another idea on the table. So let's do exactly that. Let's look at his core of his argument. He said there was three things. That morals are derived from source, three sources. One, DNA. We are born with our species morals. Now, it sounds like that he agrees with Richard Dawkins, as I quoted earlier. Randy says that the morals are a product of our brain and are hardwired in. Now, think about the implications of this for a minute. That means the terrorist acts, they're hardwired in. The child molesters, they do these acts because of hardwiring. And parents, that means you cannot punish your children for disobedience because it, too, was hardwired in. If this is true, then how can we arrest the man who kidnapped J.C. Dugard? 
On Randy's view of hardwired morality, one cannot hold the individual accountable for their actions. Can you imagine a criminal using this defense in a court of law? I didn't kill him. My DNA killed him. No reasonable jury would ever buy that defense. His second point is that morals are shaped by our culture. Well, whose culture is he referring to? Each culture does things differently. If this is true, then why didn't America mind its own business and let Germany and its culture live out its values in the 1940s? It's because we believe that there was, um, what they did was violate a transcendent moral code that goes beyond all cultures. Or Randy's view of relativism, might makes right. Whoever's the most powerful gets to make the rules. If ISIS gets powerful enough, it will impose its law on us. The third thing he says in his argument is our thoughts. We can think about what is good or bad. Now, I think Randy is trying to have his cake and eat it too here. You can't have it both ways. Which is it? Is it hardwiring? Or can we actually think about these choices? Randy has asked you to think about another view on the table this evening, but if your view is already hardwired, how can you change your thoughts? Can a computer change its own hardwiring? Not without a programmer, it can't. So what Randy gives away with his right hand, he takes back with his left. Randy's statements on number one and three are contradictory. Now that we have stepped out of the confines of our beliefs and weighed what he said, we can reject his explanation due to the problems that I've laid out. And I'm still saying that God is the best explanation for objective moral values, duties, and human rights. Thank you. So now we come to uh, what the guys have uh, uh, lightheartedly called the crossfire section. And um, I'm going to hand this over to you. Did you decide that you would just like to sit? And oh, I'll take the microphone. Who's asking first? All right, Jan, you said that. Uh, there are some supernatural claims you accept and some you reject. Could you tell us what method you use to differentiate the true from the false supernatural claims? All right, that's a great question. I would, well, James Randi, didn't he, um, he did so, certain kind of testing to determine, um, you know, like uh, the, the telekinesis with, um, I don't remember the Israeli guy, that said he could move things and bent metal. Yuri Geller. Yuri Geller, thank you. Yuri Geller claimed to have these magical powers of, of uh, you know, doing that, and it was it was a really good magic trick. And some of those are, are, um, uh, you know, magic tricks like you said. And um, I think we have to take each one of them individually. So I don't know if there's a set way um, that I just reject. I'm, I'm you and I are would agree on a lot of these. If somebody comes up and makes a supernatural claim, um, then I'm going to question that. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask for evidence, but I'm open to supernatural claims because my worldview 
allows for it. But in your worldview, you have to reject anything that's supernatural. So I'm at least open to it. But I'm, I'm skeptical about people that make supernatural claims as well. I don't know if there's one set test, um, you know, that I, I, can, I can think of. I would have to, you know, take each claim individually. Next question. Is it objectively wrong to have multiple wives? <laughs> yes. That's, that's interesting because it seems like all the patriarchs in the Bible had them, but okay. Yes, he is exactly right. There are many patriarchs in the Bible that had multiple wives. The Bible does not approve of everything it records. The Bible faithfully records history, and there are some really interesting characters in the Bible. Jesus was asked this exact question in Matthew 19, and he says, Don't you know that, the, that God that made them at the beginning made them male and female? So the right um, institution for marriage was laid out in Genesis, and that doesn't mean that all these patriarchs, including Abraham and David and all the great King Solomon, they, they didn't always follow that. So, yes, they were wrong for doing that. Can you differentiate for me why beating your slave so severely that he dies within a day is wrong, but if he makes it to three days, that's okay? That's another one of those tough passages in Scripture. He's referring to um, one of those in the, in the Levitical law, and um, I'll, I'm going to have to go back and read that uh, a little more carefully. Um, so I, I just I think that's a fair question, but I'm just unprepared to answer that question right now. I, I just don't know. I, I think it deserves a, a deeper, a deeper um, answer, and I just can't give it to you in a 30-second soundbite. In your opening statement, you talk about how a woman was captured by a man and kept for, what, like 18 plus years, and how wrong that was. Um, in the Old Testament, there are quite, there's a few instances where God orders the Israelites to do exactly that. Care to comment? Um, I am not a scholar in Old Testament that's another one of these tough passages of Scripture. I would agree there's some very tough passages of Scripture. Um, and is there one particular that you're referring to? Is there one in particular? You're talking about the, um, the Canaanites? Um, that, I can't give a short answer on this, but I'm going to try. Okay. Um, the Canaanite civilization was very immoral. They did child sacrifices and stuff like that. But also, there were people that were not killed, and they were non-combatants. So some of the language that is used in there is, um, it is, it is a military-type language. Like when we say uh, uh, two teams may say, man, we really killed them. We destroyed them. So some of that was sweeping language. We also know that some of the, the Canaanites were still around. Rahab was one of those, and she was repentant. God never commands anybody to be killed that isn't unrepentant. 
we see that throughout Scripture. Any person that is repented, um, he accepts into them. Also, these women were allowed to mourn for, um, mourn for I don't remember how many days, and then they were assimilated into the Jewish culture. But still, that, that's a tough question, and we could do a whole debate on that one. Maybe that would be a good topic to do, those tough passages in the Old Testament. Is it my turn to ask you now? Okay, so it's my turn? Okay. Um, you mentioned at the beginning God of the gaps. And you said that God did it is not an explanation. Okay. I would agree with you. It's not a scientific explanation. But if I were to ask you, if I were to say, Randy, explain to me the Ford motor car. And you were to say, well, and maybe, and I don't know a whole lot about mechanics and cars, but maybe you would give a, uh, a detailed um, uh, explanation of internal combustion engine and stuff like that. And, and, uh, but then if I said, well, Randy, that's good, but Henry Ford did it, you would accept that explanation because it's personal agency. And so do you think that the, the explanation of personal agency is a reasonable explanation because we do that all the time? We can prove Henry Ford existed. Well, but also, that's true. What do you mean by prove? He's a historical figure, but... There were other people who knew him and wrote about him. Historians wrote about him who were contemporaries. It's not a mystery as to who he was. Okay, and it's the same, but we're using personal agency here. And it's not filling in the gaps. Uh, I do agree with you that there are times when God of the gaps is used. But when you say, when, when you argue from an inference to the best explanation, then a personal agency can be a, uh, an explanation. Just like a, a homicide detective who comes across, maybe there's a, uh, a body and he looks for evidence as there's sign of force entry. Um, uh, if there's no sign of forced entry, he might could say, well, this person died by natural causes. That would be a natural explanation. If there was signs of forced entry, um, a struggle, blood, gunshot wounds, whatever, he could say, the bad guy did it. That's, that's, he's using science, but he's also making a, a, a personal, uh, an inference to personal agency. And so why is it legitimate to do that with Henry Ford, with a homicide detective, and yet not do it with um, God. Well, I think that really goes back to the uh, example we gave about James Randi. If you make a claim that you can do something, you have to do it live in front of people who are observing and watching what you're doing and measuring. You don't just get to claim, I did it yesterday and and, uh, nobody was there, but I did it. That's just a wild assertion, and that has no evidence to back it. When uh, someone makes an extraordinary claim, you, you have to have extraordinary proof to back that claim. So, uh, yeah, we could accept that a personal agent did something, but if it's, if it's a rather extraordinary thing that they're claiming to do, we have to have the evidence before we'll accept that. Do you, do you think that human beings have intrinsic value and worth? Yes, I do, because I'm a human. 
our values, our, uh, our intrinsic value that we have can only exist amongst other humans. It, our values have to have a valuer doing the valuing. It, our values cannot exist independently of humans. For example, if there were no humans, then there would be no one to evaluate or to value our existence. So, let me make sure I understand. You're saying yes because you're a human. Well, isn't that just speciesism? Okay. Thank you. He, he said yes on that. That's good. So, how, how do human beings have intrinsic value and worth if they are the product of naturalistic processes? Every species has to do things that are good for its species. That, uh, that's just part of natural selection. If, if the species existed that didn't care about its own uh, well-being, it would cease to exist. So it, that's just part of the, uh, the natural process of, uh, of, of, ev of evolution. Okay. I'm thinking I'm good. I'd, I'd like to, are you okay? You want to try to get the audience involved? Let's let the audience get involved. I still got the microphone. This, the question's for Chan. Earlier you said that uh, God never commanded the death of anyone who wasn't repentant. But there are numerous stories in the Bible where he does. I mean, I can think of a couple offhand. Um, you know, uh, the Passover story. Uh, God killed the firstborn child of every, you know, person that didn't have the blood sacrifice over the threshold of the door. In First Samuel's, he talks about the Malachites, where they killed the nursing babies. Um, there, there's several of those. Can you speak to that? Um, yeah, David, those are that's that's a tough question. And in, anybody who thinks that those passages don't bother Christians as well is is is, is wrong. Um, you know. I don't know if I can really address that. That that's one of those things that I'm still thinking about. And the only thing that, and I wasn't, you know, prepared to some of those. That question right there is is a tough one. And uh, I guess the only thing I can say is I, I just don't know. I I don't know. Um, I know that God is fair, and those passages that we read about you know, the Egyptians and stuff has, a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, the false gods that they worshiped and, and it's hard for us. And I know this is for me as a Christian, it's hard for me to try to figure out some of those tough questions in my modern day culture. I, to, to some of those things seems, seem ridiculous. And so, um, the stories that I'm familiar with, with the Canaanite civilization was, 
that God's goal was to wipe out the Canaanite religion and not the people that were repentant. The, the thing that you were talking, talking about, I, I'd have to go back and, and reread those. I, I, it's just not there right now, and so I really, can't, I really can't comment on that. But maybe we can talk later. Well, intrinsic value means it has value within something. So, yes, we can ha we can care about other things, but usually the uh, the emotions that we have uh, about valuing other things is a product of, of first caring for our own species. So, yes, other things can be uh, of concern as well. Sure. The Earth itself has intrinsic value. Well. It's our home, so yes, it has a great deal of value to us. If we didn't live here, we might not care about it so much, but yes, we do. <laughs> Anybody else? Going one? <laughs> Randy, you said that um, DNA, I'm sorry, DNA, um, culture, and our thoughts determine our morality. Is that correct? I said they can influence it. Can influence, okay. Yes, our, and our behavior, that's right. Okay, so how does, how do those three things get past the is-ought problem? How, did, how, does it, how does it transcend from what is to what ought to be? Okay. Well, when we say ought, that those are simply the things that we should be doing or are not doing uh, that uh, is to the benefit of our species or to, hum to humanity. Did, you didn't quite follow that? Um, It's almost like you're, you're saying uh, that that we are hardwired. For yes, we do. We, there is some hardwiring involved. Our so culture, how, our culture. Okay, so our, how wait. does how do we change the hardwiring? We 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 can't change the hardwiring of our own brains, but we can change. If if all there was was hardwiring then everybody would be born with a certain set of morals or behaviors that they would go throughout life with. But other things influence it, like our culture, can override our hardwiring. Uh, for example, like Chan brought up the thing about um, the Nazis. For example, most people are abhorrent to the idea of murdering somebody, but their, their culture overrode that hardwiring and made it seem to them that killing Jews was a good thing when in fact it was proven uh, to be a, a very scientifically ludicrous idea. Okay. Anybody else? Nobody else? No more questions from this 
really curious and wonderful group. All right. Do you guys have any more for each other? Because they, they only use five minutes of their 15, so. <laughs> Y'all done? All right. Okay, well, then we will have five-minute closing, closing statements. Randall, you can go ahead. The overriding idea of naturalism is that, in general, all biological systems tend to behave in a manner that leads to the benefit of survival, health, prosperity, and reproductive success of one's genes. Cooperations by individuals of any species tends to have a net positive gain for that species or group. Morality is an emergent property of an independent social nature with all social animals. Wait a minute, I, I, miss, I read that. Morality is an emergent property of independent social groups where intrinsically self-interested individuals are forced to make choices that affect the well-being of other self-interested individuals. Cooperative behaviors that mutually benefit both parties tend to naturally emerge and dominate the ecological landscape, thus giving rise to nice decisions in the face of selfish temptations. Nature isn't the slightest bit interested in whether or not something is objective moral or not. What matters is what behaviors allow an individual to have a successful offspring and that's all it cares about, or none of us would be here to argue about this. One could argue that there is a universal morality, that is, all cultural groups have a vested interest in preserving long-term survival and reproductive success. Eating babies would be detrimental to this goal. Therefore, all, cultures, all cultures discourage the eating of babies. Even atheists adhere to this despite what some believers claim. This is why we get to label the Nazis as bad. Methodological naturalism is not the position that there is no God. If God exists and is outside our natural world, we have no way to detect, measure, confirm this assertion. Our science advances work just fine without God into the equations. In fact, according to Occam's razor, inserting an unnecessary complexity like a deity would be a violation of how science is to be performed. We have observed how morality, or we have not observed how morality arose, but we have seen enough parts of it to infer how it happened. Giving a supernatural explanation like God did it is just an admission of ignorance. If a God like the one Chan, Chan champions for actually existed, he could present the necessary evidence at any time. And yet, even though I'm listening, all I hear are crickets. Thank you. It was easier. Okay, and then Chan with his closing statement. Well, this has been fun. I hope you've had some fun, Randy. As always, it's been fun. I've enjoyed this. I enjoy thinking about things, and hopefully you do too. Suppose I invited you over to my house to play Monopoly. And I said, you know what, Today, tonight the game's going to be a little different. 
Here's the Monopoly board. There's the refrigerator. There's the TV. When it's your turn, make any move you want. Let me know when you're done. So you're like, all right, I'm going to get him. You put hotels all over the board. Say, your turn. I'll walk in, dump the board upside down, go in the kitchen, make myself a sandwich. And you're like, hey, wait just a minute. And you upright the board, put even more hotels on the board. Say, your turn. I'll walk in, flip the board upside down, flip on the TV. Now, it wouldn't take you long to realize that no matter what you did with your move in the game, it was meaningless, and here's why. If the game itself does not have a purpose, then the individual moves you do in the game are also without meaning. Your individual moves only make sense in the context of an overall purpose of the game. If God does not exist, then the individual moves that we make in our lives are also without meaning. Morality means nothing if there is no God and there's no reason to be moral. As a matter of fact, naturalism actually compresses our world into a very narrow world that is actually too small to live in. I'd like to leave you with two final thoughts about the moral explanation of naturalism offered tonight by Randy. There are millions of people in this world who do not get justice in this life. And because, according to naturalism, there is no life after this one, they will never get justice. You should reject naturalism because on naturalism there is no ultimate justice. The millions that have died in concentration camps, the children who have been abused and exploited like J.C. Dugard and whose perpetrators are never caught will never get justice. I believe in a God who is infinitely bigger than that. And because Jesus died and rose again, what does that prove? It proves that he was going to be the judge. There is going to be a judgment. And I find that to be a magnificent concept that the judge of this universe is going to rise up and do right. And if you deny that, then ultimately the terrorists win. Your moral sense is a total illusion and death is the end and there is absolutely no hope. What a tiny world to live in. What a tiny world to live for. And finally, there is something inside each of us that is broken. And because we are moral creatures, that thing that is broken is moral. We are guilty because we have broken God's law. And the solution that naturalism offers is to deny your guilt. However, the solution to guilt is not denial, it's forgiveness. Naturalism has no offer of forgiveness. But the God of this world offers forgiveness to anyone who comes to him on his terms. I could believe in a God like that. Could you? Thank you. Can we thank these guys again? This, the, you guys. <laughs> if by chance you listen to the question, what best explains morality, naturalism, or supernaturalism, and you thought, yes, you might be comfortable right here tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. And also, I will tell you, as, as, as an added bonus, um, because you missed the revel tonight, and we really appreciate you being here, Keith Grimwood from Trout Fishing in America will actually be right here in this, in this sanctuary tomorrow playing music, in addition to a wonderful sermon. So that's the end of my commercial. 
and, and welcome, you're welcome in our house, and we thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us down the hall for some snacks. Thank you. <laughs>